Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Well, hello, this is Karen Heiskuzman, and it's my privilege to be a guest interviewer today on our podcast. And I have in conversation with me, Dr. Kimberly Hill, who is an assistant professor of U.S. and American history at UT Dallas. Thank you, Dr. Hill, for being with us today. Can you begin our time by sharing briefly about your background, uh, perhaps where you grew up, your educational background, et cetera? I'm glad to be here with you, Karen. I grew up in Austin, Texas, and I went to University of Texas, Austin for undergrad. Then I went to UNC Chapel Hill for grad school. My background included attending churches from several denominations, most of which did not have a missions program, and that that ended up being a big influence on what I do with my life. As a kid, I was always very interested in the talks from visiting missionaries, but I never saw a clear path for how to become one through one of my congregations. So I just got used to learning what I could about the people who were already doing it. And that led me to wanting to study missionaries in history. I also have a background from, I think my sophomore year of being involved with InterVarsity. And InterVarsity has been an important and irreplaceable part of of my academic life. Through Texas Gospel Fellowship at UT Austin, which was the the first chapter for African-American students there, and then through Focus Grad InterVarsity at UNC. Yeah, and uh, those are special years. Well, it's great to talk with an InterVarsity alum, both at the undergraduate and at the graduate levels. Well, congratulations, Dr. Hill, on the publishing of your recent book, A Higher Mission, The Careers of Alonzo and Althea Brown Edmiston in Central Africa. How is it that you came to write this book? How did you decide to write about this couple in particular? When I went into the history program at UNC Chapel Hill, I had a general idea that I'd be studying something about Christians and race relations between the 1880s and the 1930s. And thankfully, mentors came along who believed that I had the ability to be more specific than that and gave me peer pressure to do it fast. (laughs) So um, I had my first grad seminar with Dr. Theda Perdue. She gave me until the following week to come back with a specific research topic. And thanks to to that deadline, I went to the library and realized that missionaries were the ones who talked the most about how race relations influenced the development of American Christianity. And from there, I started looking at local archives. And first, I wrote about a Southern Baptist missionary named Martha Foster Crawford. But after finishing my master's thesis on her, a professor at North Carolina Central named Dr. Sylvia Jacobs, shared her research with me and very kindly suggested that I should follow up on her work by writing about the only Black Presbyterian missionary who was also a former slave in the state of Alabama. Her name was Mariah Fearing. And Dr. Jacobs, she's the authority on African-American missionaries writing from the 80s all the way up to, to her death. 
just about five years ago. So I took her word for it and I looked for everything I could find on Mariah Fearing. And that's how I learned that Mariah Fearing mentored Althea Brown and Alonzo Edmiston, who were part of that, the second wave of Black missionaries to Congo. And while I was finishing up the Mariah Fearing research in Archivist, let me see the box of microfilm of Alonzo Edmiston's diaries. And that that is specifically how I came to write this book. Because one, as soon as I started reading his daily entries from 1914 up to 1941, about I knew yeah, I knew that was it was clearly a story that he had wanted to tell. And I could see a, a clear way that I could follow that up in an academic way. That's great. So for the benefit of our audience who don't know the Edmistons or their story, would you be willing to just give us a brief synopsis of their story, an abbreviated version, if you will, so that we might know a little bit about who they are and what they did? Sure. Uh, Althea Brown was a classics graduate from Fisk University who was very committed to her faith in Christ from the day that she converted I think she was 18 at the time. And she was also very, very committed to devoting her academic skills and her talents to serving her faith and to serving her community. I felt drawn to this example of somebody who was laser focused on what she saw in her future and did not take no for an answer. So with her classics degree, from very early on, she wanted to become a missionary. She applied to the Southern Presbyterian or Presbyterian Church in the United States denomination because she knew that there were other African-Americans who had already been serving through that denomination in the Congo Free State. And she just determined that with the additional medical training she had and with her skills in languages and in singing and in primary school teaching, she was just going to find a way to be successful overseas. And she wrote the first dictionary and grammar book of the Bouchong language, something that's still being used as an academic resource today. She started schools, including an agricultural college that she co-founded with Alonzo Edmiston. She translated hymns. She started a choir. And she, besides writing her own miniature version of an autobiography, she also wrote a biography in tribute to Mariah Fearing. I just found Althea Brown unstoppable and endlessly fascinating. Alonzo Edmiston, I describe him as the man who saw Althea Brown and her vision for her life and loved her so much that he dedicated his own talents and skills and time to making sure that her vision was going to come, come to fruition. And because he saw that through her plans for the future, both of them could, could serve the Lord serve their African neighbors, serve their colleagues, and also make a life that would be that would be fruitful and supportive for their children. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about how it is that they ended up in the Congo? Sure. Althea Brown was hired to work at the Congo Mission in 1901, and she arrived in 1902. There were already at least four students from Fisk University who had already started working as missionaries to Africa. So she followed that tradition in applying to work with them or to work in the similar field as them. The Southern Presbyterian Church hired her to support the 
schools that were already happening on the mission field. And she expected to go indefinitely as a single missionary. So she arrived in 1902. Two years later, Alonzo Edmiston was also hoping to become a missionary because of the example set by the classmates he'd met at the Presbyterian Seminary. It's called Stillman Institute. So it's a seminary for African-American men. And four of them had also become missionaries to Congo. Alonzo Edmiston was hoping to join them. But instead of getting an official call to join the mission while he was in the U.S., he got an invitation from one of his former professors to travel over there with him to run an errand for the World's Fair. His professor wanted to create an exhibit featuring Congolese pygmies, and Alonzo Edmiston was going to travel with him and help him bring African people back. Instead of doing that, Alonzo Edmiston took the one-way trip over there, then wrote a letter to his classmate saying, I've made it to Congo. His classmate invited him to the mission, and Alonzo Edmiston walked through the forest about 40 miles to find the mission station, met Althea Brown, got impressed for a couple of reasons, (laughs) and just immediately got to work. And because he seemed so enthusiastic, the church hired him to stay on as a missionary. Well, one of the things that you talk about in the book is sort of the differences in their backgrounds and particularly their educational backgrounds. Can you say a little bit about how they and how they brought those two things together, actually, in a way that was wonderful? Sure. Althea Brown was an intellectual and very, very clear about that. That She loved liberal arts. She loved culture. She loved linguistics. And she founded the first classical classics student club at Fisk as a way to share that love with others. That's how she was able to learn learn African languages relatively quickly. Alonzo Edmiston's background was not in that Fisk University classics style. So attending seminary was the first time in his life that he had been allowed to devote a significant amount of time to education. Before that, he was working for the white Edmiston family in the house or in the fields and only allowed to attend school for a few months each year. The seminary degree gave him networking opportunities and the education that he could need to maybe start a church in the U.S. South. When he got to the Congo mission, he was asked to do manual labor industrial work a lot of construction or starting an industrial school to teach children how to make furniture or that sort of thing. He was asked to do these things because there was a rising theory around the turn of the 20th century that this was the appropriate form of education for all people of African descent. And he was chosen to be a model to help prove that theory true and to apply it to people in Central Africa. That was not his actual educational background. What stood out to me about about the way the Edmistons worked together was that for all of the controversy and debate that you hear in a U.S. history class over whether industrial education was the future for African-Americans or whether W.E.B. Du Bois's style of classical liberal arts was the future, they made a professional and personal partnership 
that did not countenance any any disparity in that combination. She was going to to apply her intellectual work. He knew that he was expected to apply industrial education work, but he wanted to focus on ministry. They were just going to find a way to do all three for the primary goal of staying together and the primary goal of serving God through their talents. Yeah. So as you were involved in this project, both the research that you did as well as the writing, were there things that surprised you about either Alonzo or Althea or maybe both of them, things that you didn't expect about them or their experiences? From the beginning of the research, I was surprised with how open Alonzo Edmiston was about his feelings. I learned a lot academically in terms of the influence of education theory and historically Black colleges. But what hooked me at the very beginning of the research was reading Alonzo Edmiston's journal entries saying that mother mother and the baby have gone on furlough back to the U.S. and I miss them so much. And it's hard to concentrate on writing this sermon right now. And where everybody in the church misses them too. And we're, we're just sitting here feeling, feeling caught up in our grief right now. Yeah. Yeah. That, that kind of openness made me ask so many more questions, enough questions to, to write this, this book. As I, as I kept going, I was surprised at the many ways that the Edmistons recovered from setbacks. Mm. And uh, originally that, that was going to be one of the chapter titles just because that seemed like such an important part of their journey. They're, they were serving in the Congo Free State during, during the years that King Leopold II's administration was being accused of human rights abuses. They witnessed people who had been intimidated or tortured, and they continued to witness colonial abuses through their uh, little over 30 years working there together. Then they had pushback from the denomination over whether Althea Brown seemed to be too much of an intellectual or whether she seemed to be haughty about her qualifications over whether Alonzo Edmiston's work on the farm or with the industrial school seemed to be fulfilling the goals that they had in mind for him over whether they should be allowed to return after being fired in 1908. And then in general, the status of African-American missionaries in the field was changing due to colonial pressure and American Jim Crow politics. And so many things that the Edmonds are juggling and the fact that they did so long enough for Althea to spend her final days at the mission. Yeah, it, it still kind of gets me. Yeah, you include a couple letters in the appendix of the book that they wrote. Begging might be a little bit uh, a strong word. No, it's not a strong word. (laughs) But you get this sense reading their letters of how committed they were to the work and how they longed to return. And Uh, Althea said, I will never, never be happy again in this life. Yeah. Yeah if I did not return, turn to Africa. Yeah. So again, the deeply personal-ness, if I can use that word, right, of, of those letters and uh, you're including them in the book gives, I think, a 
yeah, a picture into their lives, into their inner lives and their commitment. And it reminds me in some ways of some of the ways that the Apostle Paul talks about his longing to see the people that he had invested in, right? There was just this deep love for them and for the work and a belief in themselves, right, of the value that they brought to the entire enterprise. Uh, The other thing that surprised me about them was learning how important their U.S. network was Mm -hmm. to to their success on the mission field and to the future of, of their family, their children and grandchildren. I didn't expect that going in. I thought that my book was going to focus on what they were doing in Africa. And then I started looking more more at their their colleges and universities, the places where they spent time during furloughs, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and Selma, Alabama. And it hit me that the issues that those cities were dealing with in the 1920s, 1930s, segregation, voting restrictions, poor public health in the segregated Black schools and neighborhoods, all of those things had some influence on the African-American missionaries too, because it influenced their children and their neighbors, their friends back home. So that, yeah, that was a a part of the story Mm -hmm. that is surprising and, and is also guiding the projects that I have, I have in mind for the future. Yeah, so I'm curious if you might say a little bit more about their lives and their work in the ways that they're unique, how it's particularly important for that historical moment. Sure. So when I think about what makes them unique, I have to start counterintuitively by talking about the way that they're not unique. So I think Althea Brown and Alonzo Edmiston were very consciously trying to fit in to what they saw at the campuses they graduated from. They did not want to break from tradition in the sense that Althea Brown thought of herself as another Fisk missionary, not even though she did become the longest serving one, she wasn't trying to be the face of a Fisk missionary. She wanted to be part of the tradition of Fisk students leaving their all on the altar. Alonzo Edmiston, he, he wanted to be another Stillman minister who went to Congo, and he wanted to contribute to their work. Even in the times when he was told that he was being promoted to start a new endeavor, like his agricultural college, he didn't particularly want to get a promotion to be the one in the spotlight. He wanted to know that what he was doing was in the best interest of his African neighbors and that it would help to grow the church if it didn't seem that the timing was right for it to be long-lasting and sustainable, then he didn't want the extra praise or responsibility. So they saw themselves as playing out traditions that started at HBCUs in the U.S. South. What made them unique was that by 1920, most of the European colonial governments had started either formal or informal policies to bar African-Americans from living in their colonies on the suspicion that African-Americans might spread rebellious sentiments. They were concerned about Marcus Garvey's Nationalist Universal Negro Improvement Association. They were concerned about possible uprisings within the colony. And two of the largest mission boards worked with the colonial governments to help ensure that through various means, 
African-Americans would be discouraged from going to the African continent to work. So the Edmistons were unique in returning to the mission field, even despite that policy and actually having some influence on the colonial government through their education strategies by the end of their careers. Yeah, that's great. So what about them and their work do you find compelling personally? I find their specific backgrounds, uh, the fact that they adopted Selma, Alabama as their U.S. home base. I find that compelling personally because my own family is from Selma. And it's in some ways, it's just kind of comforting to think about other African-Americans from that town living such extraordinary experiences and even interacting maybe with some people that my family knew. Yeah. I find their story compelling for the uplifting aspect of knowing that the Edmonsons got part of their strength from seeing the commitment of their African neighbors who refused to believe that the abuse, the financial oppression that was around them was the way that things always had to be. And uh, the fact that their African neighbors showed concern for the Edmistons helped the Edmistons find the strength to continue to also observe their neighbors' needs and to meld that with their Presbyterian ministry interests. Yeah, I like that model of people becoming stronger and making a lasting impact through caring for one another, not necessarily through using political or economic ways to become more powerful. Their power was in was in love and respect. Yeah, it seems there was a beautiful mutuality, if you will, of concern and care happening both ways there. So what significance do their lives and their work hold for our understanding of the work of African Americans in the global mission of the church? While I've been working on the project, I've I've been trying to learn more about the current role of African Americans in global mission. And what I've learned so far is that there's much more visibility for African-Americans in missions than I remember in my personal experience, like 15 or 20 years ago. The number of African-Americans who are volunteering for missions seems to be on the increase. And there's also annual conferences for African-American missionaries now. I think that's interdenominational. So the way that I see my project contributing is to help show the through line of history that there are deep roots to this interest that African-Americans are showing in working overseas or even with the idea of African-Americans moving to Ghana uh, for the year of return, that there are deep roots in people feeling a cultural connection and wanting to provide some sense of justice and support. On the academic side, I've also been attending Yale-Edinburgh conferences for mission studies, where I've met African scholars who focus on the, the new wave of African missionaries to the United States. And they're seeing this as a reverse of the, the Christendom model that was the norm 100 years ago. So the West, the U.S. and Europe are no longer considered the seat of Christendom taking faith West to the rest of the world, or Maybe I've got that mixed up. Taking faith to the rest of the world in the South or in the East. Now, the numbers of missionaries, the size of the churches, 
number of conversions indicates that Christianity is stronger outside of Europe. And when I study African-American missionaries, I help contribute to that idea that African Christians were already, already contributing ideas, priorities that shaped the mission movement even before this modern growth that we see. Right. Yes. Well, if you could ask Alonzo or Althea a question or two, what would you ask them? Yeah, this one was the trickiest question for me. Okay. In some way, I kind of feel like I don't need to ask them questions. And the reason why is that through Ancestry.com, I was able to connect with, with their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Ah. And seeing how successful their descendants have become professionally and personally, seeing how they support each other, how they continue to show interest in the church and African missions, seeing how they continue the characters of their grandparents. It, in a way, it just kind of, it left me feeling secure like I, I feel like I know what I needed to know about them mm. through seeing how well their family is living life. Did you have a sense of when you connected with their grandchildren, did you have this sense of, well, of course, this is where you would be because you have this history, you know, this history behind you, which supports all of who you are today. Yes, I, I could see them living out the legacy that Alonzo and Althea were building back then, but then to actually get to sit with them and hear them talk about that legacy and what it means to them to be able to continue passing that on. That was a very special part of my life. Absolutely. It almost feels like instead of asking them a question, you would get to tell them what they're, you know, what <laughs> what their grandkids are doing, right? That would be nice. I guess I would ask them what else they would want to share. Yeah. Uh, but mostly I just want to thank them for the opportunity to be able to pass along part of their history and to give their family something that will will hopefully bring some me extra meaning. Sure. Well, I have one last question to ask you, but before I do that, I did want to ask, is there anything else you would want our audience to know about Alonzo and Althea or about their work or about their story? I would like the audience to know that stories like this one of the Edmistons represent something that is not, it was not typically seen in church talks or in movies or most of the books that I saw in the early part of my life, but something that I think is worth our time and our attention. And that's the idea of seeing a Black love story that highlights their dreams, their respect for one another, and their accomplishments and their faith. So I wanted this book to be very firmly African-American history. I'll, I'll rephrase that. When I started writing this book, I knew that I was going to focus on these two people as two people who loved each other and had specific goals and dreams. Given the various things that were happening around them, colonialism, Jim Crow era, racial violence, this story could also be perceived as a story of prejudice or racism, 
within their denomination or within the colony. I am very intentional about it not being a story of racism, not being a story of racism in the Congo mission or being a story of racism in the denomination overall. There were events that happened to them that showed injustice, but we can also find value in focusing on the ways that people continued to have their own life, their own dreams and accomplishments without focusing on on the obstacles that were against them. I see the love story as being a way for us to reorient our minds, to think the Edmistons are worth reading about because they're fascinating, successful, and inspiring people. We don't need to trace their value just in terms of thinking of what it means for the reputation of the denomination. Well, thank you for telling their story. There are all kinds of interesting layers, I think, in their story, their connection to HBCUs, all of what was going on in sort of denominationalism, what was going on, as you mentioned, in colonialism in the Congo and the different things happening there. Meanwhile, what's happening in the United States. Yeah, so just lots of very interesting layers of influence and all that's happening in their story. And as you mentioned, just this beautiful story about these Two people who had a love for one another and a love for the people of the Congo and a love for God and his kingdom, right? So thanks for telling their story. And I appreciated in the very beginning of the book, you list a history with just these dates. That was really helpful. And then I loved the things that you included in the end. We can thank the press for that. (laughs) They made me finally do that. And then the the things you included in the appendix, like I mentioned earlier, their letters, and I just uh, lended a personal effect, I guess, if you will, too. And I included a letter from one of their African students. Yes, lovely. Who wanted to send a memorial to Althea. That was important to include an African voice like they tried to do in their work. Yes, absolutely. Well, we like to conclude all of our podcasts by asking the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote, scripture, song, or other set of words that's been particularly meaningful to you lately? And can you share about why it resonates with you at this time? Yesterday was Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. And I devoted most of the morning and afternoon to thinking about my father and other loved ones who've passed on. So the song that has been in my mind lately is a hit from the gospel singer Rance Allen, who passed away on October 30th. The lyrics are something about the name Jesus. Something about the name Jesus. Something about the name Jesus. It is the sweetest name I know. And it's resonating with me because it reminds me of the times that I went to church with my dad and with my other relatives who have passed on now. And just thinking about how nice it felt being together and feeling optimistic about the future. And that song reminds me of how Our shared faith in Christ is such a part of those optimistic, happy memories that still give me a little extra strength in my spine. 
Yeah, it, it's irreplaceable. So I like having a song that helps me focus on the sweetness of the faith. Yeah, that's lovely. And we need a little extra strength in our spines these days, don't we? So, yeah. Thank you for singing it for us. That was great. I love that. Listen to Rance Allen's version. It's better. <laughs> of course. <laughs> He's Rance Allen. I'm just me. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> well, I was going to say, if your day job doesn't work out, maybe you can start a singing career. Well, thank you so much for your willingness to chat with me today. It's been delightful, and I hope I hope that lots of folks read your book and appreciate both the historical value that your book holds. Thank you. But also just the lovely value that your book holds as well. Maybe we'll see a movie version of it uh, in the future, right? <laughs> oh, I am so on board. That's great. All right. Well, thanks again for being with us. It was great talking with you. And I look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.